Hello, welcome to the Bauhaus Wife podcast. I'm Yolanda Clark, the author of the Bauhaus Wife blog at www.bauhauswife.com. That's B A U H A U S W I F E.com. And that's where I write about motherhood, pregnancy, free birth, holistic health, nourishment, homeschooling, feminism, family spirit, outrageousness, and dissent. So I have to first of all apologize for not having been around for a little while. Um, This podcast is coming out later than I'd wanted it to. But I have been fully out of commission for the past few weeks, actually, with a pretty awful flu, which you can probably still hear in my voice. So I'm so sorry this podcast is late to land and for my less than mellifluous tones. (laughs) But um, anyway, we're just gonna go for it nonetheless. So here goes. Now, in addition to being a writer and a podcaster, I'm also a full spectrum home birth witness or birth attendant. And I've been working in the birth industry now for over 10 years. I work face-to-face with families who've chosen home birth here in New Brunswick, where I live, and I also do phone and Skype sessions with mothers and families all over the world. I'm also offering a new coaching package for women who are interested in working with me but who don't live in my geographic location. It's designed for anyone who's considering a free birth or who's actively planning a free birth or a home birth but who might feel frustrated by the conflicting information out there or confused or unsure as to how to go about creating the ideal conditions for the kind of home birth or free birth that you really want. This package includes two 45-minute phone or Skype coaching sessions with me, during which we'll do a really deep dive into your life and your situation and identify and address some of your primary fears around home birth or free birth. And it also includes an mp3 recording of free birth affirmations, guided meditation, and also my ebook on prenatal nutrition and wellness, and lots more as well. I've had some fantastic feedback from a bunch of different people who've really got a lot out of the program. So if you're interested, you can access that on my website. Again, that's bahousewife.com, and you can just go to the work with me section at the top. And if you're really new to the idea of free birth, or if you're interested in my own philosophy around birth, I have a lovely and thought-provoking little book called The Bauhaus Wife Recipe Book for an Ecstatic Autonomous Physiological Birth at Home. And this is a short guide to the very first steps in creating a euphoric, independent birth. And in the book, I talk about the fact that in my own experience, There really is a formula when it comes to having a powerful and peaceful pregnancy and to planning and implementing the perfect birth outside of the hospital and outside of the medical system. I gave birth to all of my own children at home and can guarantee that it is very possible to actively and consciously go about giving birth confidently. And this book is free, so you can go ahead and download it from my website, and that's again, bahaswife.com. And I'm also working right now on a course for women who are interested in learning the business and practice of becoming an independent, full-spectrum home birth doula. And this will include the philosophy and practicalities of working with mothers and families as an independent birth worker, how to approach and structure meetings prenatally, how to support mothers and fathers during the birth process, how to notice potential complications and what to do 
about that as a non-medical birth witness. I talk about keeping birth safe, the equipment that you might want for a doula kit, legalities, how to go about building a clientele base, how to set up an effective website without spending a lot of money, and basically everything that I know that has worked for me when it comes to creating a supportive grassroots independent birth community where you live and supporting yourself financially while doing it. Now, many women don't realize that being a doula in Canada anyway is not a regulated practice and that no specific licenses or certifications are required. And I would love to see more independent birth attendants practicing all over Canada and, and everywhere really. And I actually receive messages weekly from women all over the place who are looking for independent birth support uh, outside of regulated systems. So I think there really is a demand for this. Um, anyway, I'll be uh, finishing up the development of this course over the next little while. So I'm hoping to start being able to offer it in July. Um, and I will be offering it with an in-person component here in New Brunswick, but also entirely online for those who don't live in the area. Now, on to the podcast. So this is episode number five of the Bauhaus Wife podcast, and it's actually also part two of a conversation that I had with three wonderful women, Renee, a mother of five children, Natalie Arsenault, an independent birth witness and community leader in the Moncton, New Brunswick area, and Kate Varsava, also an independent birth witness who lives in the Halifax region. This interview was recorded when all four of us were together recently in Halifax. You might want to go back and listen to the previous episode, episode number four, just to get the full scope of what's being discussed here, if you haven't already, as well as to hear Renee's five birth stories, because the conversation in this episode references Renee's account that she shares in the last one, and it especially pertains to the subtle and not-so-subtle differences in Renee's experience going from her fourth birth, which took place in her home with just her husband present, which is often referred to as an unassisted birth or a free birth, or my favorite description, a family birth, to her fifth birth, during which she engaged the services of regulated midwives who, in the province of Nova Scotia, and in most provinces in Canada, are funded and overseen by our socialized medical system. So, without further ado, here's our discussion, beginning with the lovely and amazing birth attendant, my dear friend and sister-in-arms, Kate Varsava. Now, Kate mentions at the start a workshop that all four of us, Renee, Natalie, Kate, and myself, attended during that Halifax trip. And then Kate goes on to talk about Renee's fourth birth experience, her unassisted or family birth, again, relayed in the previous podcast number four. Oh, and I should mention, too, that we're joined also by Renee's beautiful little baby and Natalie's little one also. So those are the, the lovely coos and sounds in the background. Kind of touches perfectly on what we were talking about today at the workshop that we all went to and or that I was trying to kind of bring out with my question or statement or whatever about taking personal responsibility and why not take personal responsibility and you so felt that it sounds like in your fir your fourth birth by taking that personal responsibility you were fully in your power you were so in tune with your intuition because you were relying on yourself so you really got to listen to yourself and your baby and 
I think it's just so easy and it's such a pattern in our entire culture to pass over responsibility for everything. Food safety, um, car safety, um, the education of our children, the daycares, um, birth, death, everything. We are so quick to pass over responsibility thinking that we are creating, delusionally thinking that we are creating this safer, more efficient world. And really we're just giving up our power over and over and over. What I really see myself when it comes to midwifery regulation is that it's very much predicated on this assumption that we as women really don't have the the knowledge, the authority, the ability to take responsibility for birth ourselves. We don't really have the right knowledge or the correct knowledge or enough knowledge to be able to choose a birth attendant from the really wide variety of, of choices that that most of us do have in any community. I mean, in most communities, there are independent birth attendants at work, underground. Um, and that's one of the central arguments that I hear in favor of regulation, which is that women need to be protected, which really means that we need to be protected from ourselves, which is incredibly infantilizing and condescending, I think. We, we seem to now believe that... Um knowledge that can be measured and calculated and written down on charts and um, is the best knowledge possible. And yet, when, for instance, and I'm going to use kind of a getting sick example, you know before you have a fever you're going to have the chills, or you feel it in your body before any of that measurable <laughs> symptoms are uh, <laughs> able to be measured. And so you know you're sick without having that objective knowledge. And why is it so different with birth? Why can't you just feel and I think part of it's because we have lost um, the knowledge as to how to listen to ourselves the knowledge that's being shared between women from either generation to generation or between sisters or best friends or um, the only thing that I feel are lots and lots of baby books and so as if the knowledge can come only from books. Um, Girlfriend's Guide to Pregnancy and um, one of my favorites, and you're going to know which one it is. It's not a good one. <laughs> um, and now I can't think of the name of it. Um, I'm going to say Idiot's Guide to Birth, but no, that's not it. <laughs> what to expect, what to expect <laughs> when you're expecting. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, it's funny, huh? Um, yeah. 
Well, you know, I, I felt sort of bad, Renee, about um, you know interrupting you to <clears throat> point out that you know those midwives shouldn't really actually have been um, you know giving you vigorous um, postpartum uterine massage. Um, but uh, anyway, I was compelled to. I just I I, I can't uh, control myself, obviously. But I think it is important, really, to to acknowledge these things and to point them out. And 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 again, I'm really glad that you you did preface a lot of what you said just by saying that you you felt a great connection with these women they are all good people you know they have the best of intentions and and I know that that's absolutely true I I've never met anyone who who works in birth that isn't you know there because they love women and they want to be doing good in the world but regulated midwifery is a branch of our medical system and regulated midwives are trained in an institutional system, often under the tutelage of doctors and obstetricians, and they are being taught procedures and ways of of doing things that many, many independent birth workers, traditional midwives in, in some communities where that hasn't been criminalized, know because of science and evidence, but mostly just through experience and common sense and and the experience of birthing our own babies, that so much of what is practiced under regulated midwifery is actually not evidence-based and and is harmful, in fact. And that's one of the things that really drives me nuts about the system, which is that in so much of regulated midwifery is an imposition of medicalized approaches to childbirth imposed on a home in a home setting uh, in the case of home birth with regulated midwives and and that's it's just very very dangerous I just wanted to say I love you know I love hearing women's experiences love hearing their birth stories but what I'm really interested in is what is your takeaway what is the learning because Women can draw their own conclusions from what you, but they might not have the personal insight into that story to be able to put it all together to, you know, do the takeaway. So that's mostly what I'm interested in. I know that my, you know, personal thoughts have changed on, yes, uh, regulated midwifery, good, you know, highest quality of care, that's the best. And then, you know, then you learn more, you delve in, you have your own personal experiences, and then those thoughts change. And so I guess I want to get to the crux of it for women so that um, that's their starting point. What I have, and this has been um, an ongoing uh, intellectual battle for me, because um, looking at how I have felt with my fourth birth and my fifth birth, and to be honest, all of my pregnancies and births, <coughs> the one that I cherished the most and the one where I felt the most empowered was the one family birth that I had, so my fourth birth. Um, coming, but I have to say excuse you it was a process for me I didn't I didn't just become pregnant and then realize oh yeah I can do this by myself 
because I had, I didn't have that intuition that you had, Yolan, for, um, well, this is a normal process. I can, I can do this from the get-go with my first. And it seems like I had to kind of fall into birthing my way um, through trial and error, basically. I used myself as my own guinea pig in order to find <laughs> what really worked for me. And that's a shame. Um, but when we look at legislated midwifery and the quote-unquote options that it provides women, then who's getting, who, who can actually get legislated midwifery care? Um, so, for instance, I have um, a friend who has had a cesarean for her first. She's had two vaginal births for subsequent pregnancies. And now she's pregnant with her fourth and is not allowed to have a home birth with midwives, even though her last labor was about four hours long. Um, and that's not because it's evidence-based, it's because it's protocol. Um, and so if she goes to a different province, the protocols are different. And so if we're talking evidence-based, then why are all the protocols different? Is it just... And, and my question, in addition to that, would be if we're really talking about informed consent and choice, then women should have the choice to um, make decisions that go over and above protocol, as well as evidence even, in my view. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, now, my take is, because uh, I've talked about um, how I felt a lot more intuitive with my fourth pregnancy, and and, and I think, um, I mean, if, if you're asking me for my next baby, which hopefully will not be soon, um, if, <laughs> um, if, uh, if I'm going to go with legislated midwifery, I'm going to say... No, not unless I need medical care. Um, and I think that's, that's something to, to remember, is that it is medical care. They are, um, for each visit, they're not, they're not really taking care of you. Like, me driving to my appointments every month, every two weeks, and then every week at the end of my pregnancy with my four other children was not for me. It was for them. Um, it was forcing me to get out of the house, I guess. But it was not, like, I could have texted them my blood pressure if, I, if that's the number that I wanted, right? Like, it wasn't for me. Um, and so they are medical professionals um, and there's no there's not really any other way around that um, I think so in, intellectually um, unassisted or um, you, having um, traditional birth attendants are is the way to go but I think my I have an emotional connection 
to legislated midwifery in some ways just because I was I was the naive 22 year old who having her first baby wanted to make sure that she was in a hospital because something could go wrong right it's my first baby that's usually what happens something goes wrong right and so that's what we're led to believe exactly exactly no and so short of that what do you do like what are the steps that we need to take now so that we don't have to have another guinea pig like I was right exactly we need to have more uh, women gathering and talking about their experiences and the knowledge that they gain through those experiences um, because that's that's when we'll take our power back um, one thing that I hear really frequently when I talk to other women about some of the limitations of regulated midwifery is that in that sort of system real informed consent real options are are not in practice available to women and I hear all the time women saying, no, 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 you've got it wrong, Yolanda. Sure, regulated midwives have protocol and you know scope of practice and regulations that they have to function under. However, the mother is always in charge and the mother can just say the word and the midwives have to do what she wants. But I, I don't see that really being the case and it sounds like your experience speaks to that phenomenon a little bit. There is, um, I mean, I was a compliant patient, or as much as I could. Um, um, I peed on the stick because that's what I had the choice, but again, they needed to chart. Um, listening to fetal heart rates was done with a fetoscope. Uh, not by the Doppler, request. by my request. Um, and I had to remind them a couple of times because apparently that was not written in my chart. Um, and then, of course, in labor, um, I did have a cervix <clears throat> check to make sure that it was the right time to call the second midwife. And I agreed to it. I was asked and I agreed. Being able to say yes or no doesn't necessarily mean that you have the real choice. I felt that there's this... Aren't we vulnerable anyways? We're vulnerable anyways. And there is a stigma associated with not being a good patient. Not to say that my care would have been any worse. But in my mind... You don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to rock the boat. It's not the time. This is my baby's birthday. And so I will go with what you offer because I don't want to rock the boat. And so um, so the notion of choice there is interesting. Yes, you can say no, but... In, like, can you really emotionally in that yeah. vulnerable time? 
Well, you don't know at what cost. Mm-hmm. Just saying no is. The person receiving the no could be perfectly fine with it, and you go on your merry way. Or that can be an affront to them. And, you know, how dare you question my authority? And not that they're going to come right out and say that, but that's what it's going to come down to, is that you're questioning what they know is best. Listen, I do this for a living. I see women birthing every single day. Don't tell me, you know, that you think that you know more about birth than me. You know, which is, that's ass backwards. I'm sorry. I will never know more about birth than the actual birthing mother. She is the authority on this particular birth, which is what's happening right at this moment. Uh, I, I want to speak to something that you mentioned a, a little while ago in this conversation, Renee, and I just, I just have to clarify that you, you give me way, 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 way too much credit when you assume that I birthed at home with my first baby because of all of the intuition that I held, you know, about birth. No, that's totally not it. Um, <laughs> like, I promise that's not it. Uh, my decision finally to to give birth at home with my with my first and with all of my babies it really was especially during my first pregnancy informed by rage and defiance and opposition and just kind of anger more than anything. so intuition not really I mean yes I think there was an element of that but uh but I I really and, and it's interesting this this came up in the um, in the lecture that we just um, attended as well and I'm not I'm not saying that this is the way to go about it, but but it it, it worked for me and it, it put me on the path that I'm now on, and I feel much more at peace with all of the work that I do as a mother and individual, and also out in the world working with birthing women. But um, I really was reacting to so much of what I saw out there, and I I was out to prove myself, and and I I kind of did, and I felt really great about that. Um, and I'm not functioning in that mode anymore myself, but but that was sort of the catalyst for me for making this you know crazy decision to, at the age of 20, have my baby at home. So not so much that I was in touch with my <laughs> intuition or like full of wisdom or anything like that. It was yeah, kind of motivated by a number of different things, but not just that. Hi, it's Yolanda again. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to mention a few things before we finish with our conversation. Now first I'd like to talk a little bit about the Fredericton Home Birth Network which is a support and story group for anyone who's interested in exploring the many options available in the Fredericton area and the rest of New Brunswick as well for women who are interested in home birth. The meeting is always free and we gather in person once a month in downtown Fredericton to network and share birth stories and to give each other support. Uh, we have a Facebook page at the Fredericton Home Birth Network for more information. And our next meeting is coming up on Thursday, the 28th of April. And it's at 6 p.m. at the Abbey Cafe on Queen Street. So check out our Facebook page if you'd like some more info on that. Also, I wanted to mention that a dear, dear friend of mine and also a wonderful birth witness, Lisa LeBlanc, hosts a monthly 
village prenatal meeting for women in the Moncton area. And this is just such a gift to the community. It's a wonderful group of women who come together and do group village uh, prenatal sessions. So if you're pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant, it's a very welcoming and, uh, and wonderful group with lots of really in-depth information to share. Uh, there's also a Facebook page for that group at Village Prenatals. And I want to quickly mention that I'm also a visual artist. I make pottery and paintings, and you can check all that out at www.yolandanorrisclark.com. That's Y-O-L-A-N-D-E-N-O-R-R-I-S-C-L-A-R-K.com. And I have an upcoming solo exhibit at the Buckland Merrifield Gallery in St. John, New Brunswick. This show opens the evening of Friday, May 13th. And the exhibition is a collection of my most recent large, colorful, gilded ceramic vessels. And I'm really excited about the show, and I'd love to see you there at the opening, or you can stop in over the subsequent couple of weeks as the show will be up for a little while. And finally, I'd like to mention a lovely little skincare company called Flora and Fauna Apothecary, which makes a gorgeous skin elixir made from certified organic and fairly traded botanical oils sourced from the most reputable producers around. The ingredients include red raspberry oil, which is ultra-light and non-greasy and has a natural SPF factor of between 20 and 25, and also contains a non-reactive form of vitamin C, frankincense oil, sea buckthorn oil, macadamia nut oil, a smidgen of emu oil, and a non-synthetic form of coenzyme Q10. It's regenerative, anti-inflammatory, and can actually help repair UV damage as well as protect from it. It also smells amazing, just faintly of raspberries and flowers, and it's silky and lovely, and it's the only thing I ever put on my face. So check it out at www.florafauna.ca. That's F-L-O-R-A-F-A-U-N-A dot C-A. And... To complete this little interruption, I want to talk a bit about the most exciting event coming up this summer in New Brunswick, and that is the New Brunswick Women's Summit. The summit is a three-day residential retreat, which happens right on the edge of one of the most gorgeous white sand beaches near the resort town of Shediac, New Brunswick. The cost of the weekend is $250, and that includes camping on site in your own tent or in one of the beautiful yurts that will be set up, and admission to all of the many workshops that will be taught by amazing women leaders from our own community and beyond on topics ranging from birth to breastfeeding, fertility, art, yoga, parenting, and pretty much everything and anything that relates to women's lives. And it also includes all of the meals, which are made from wonderful organic and local ingredients. And uh, it's just a fantastic event, and it's really been the highlight of my summer for the past few years. And I encourage anyone to attend if you possibly can. Um, you know, the, the cost of the weekend is just so much more reasonable than the cost of similar retreats, and I think the value is just, it's beyond immense. So I would love to see you there. I will hopefully be leading workshop myself. 
Um, and I also might be having a baby that weekend too. So, uh, maybe it'll happen there. So that would also be exciting. Um, anyway, the website for the summit is www.womensummit.org. Now the spelling is a little bit particular. So listen up. That's W-O-M-Y-N-S-S-U-M-M-I-T.org. So I'd love to see you there. Great. Now, we will get back to the podcast. Here we go. Um, Kate, I'm wondering if maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, without using any you know names or specific examples, but maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the, um, the conflicts that you have witnessed in your work with women when it comes to consent and choice and the system and way and the way that those sort of issues uh, intersect. Yeah. Um, I mean, I see it kind of in all interactions, I suppose, that women have with uh, the care providers in the medical system, in prenatal appointments, in the birth itself, in postpartum appointments. There are conflicts in all of those places. Um, in prenatal appointments, often I hear stories from women uh, about being given lists of the protocols that the midwives here are expected to offer, adhere to, explore with the clients. And women say, wow, like there's a lot more to natural birth with a midwife than I realized. There's still a lot of uh, medications and medical stuff offered, and that's usually surprising. So often conflicts arise in those conversations with um, women saying, for example, with ultrasound, well, you know, I've heard X, Y, and Z about ultrasound not being exactly safe. And I have heard stories from women being straight up lied to and told by midwives there is no evidence that ultrasound is harmful in any way. This is a lie. Um, Women often are confused by the amount of medical equipment that midwives are bringing to home births, by the requirement to have a table in the room for them to set the equipment up on, for the equipment being in their visual sight lines during the birth. This is a frustration. Um, Things like, I think that in early appointments, it's very easy to get along with these care providers. They clearly love women. And like we said before, their hearts are in the right place and they got into this work because they genuinely care about women and want to work for women and with women. But the realities of working inside an institution are that you get into appointments and, yeah, you get along with the midwives and care providers in the early appointments, but when it starts to come to the later stages of pregnancy, then questions start to arise. You know, GBS testing. There's often uh, conflicts over testing for GBS. There are often conflicts in women saying, well, is this GBS test even an indicator of anything if I'm not going to birth for three more weeks? or what the proper treatments, appropriate treatments for GBS are, you know, antibiotics versus garlic or probiotics, dietary, um, 
dietary changes, post dates is a huge, huge conflict in the medical system. So everything can be seeming hunky dory and we're all, you know, getting along for this, getting along and getting ready for this beautiful home birth until, uh oh, I'm 39 weeks pregnant and doesn't look like I'm going to give birth this week. And what happens next week? And what happens the week after that? And what happens the week after that? And then it becomes a territorial dispute over whether the midwives are even able to follow the pregnancy past a certain date, whether a home birth is able to happen past a certain date, weight, whether women who are considered, let's use the word fat, are allowed to give birth at home, Uh, women over the age of 40. Some women I know have been told, no, you can't have a home birth past the age of 40. And other women I know have been told, sure, you can have a home birth over the age of 40. There are zoning restrictions with legislated midwifery in Nova Scotia. And I know that exceptions are made to those zoning restrictions. Some women do give birth outside of those zoning restrictions. So there's nepotistic favoritism offered within this system to the women who the midwives like or know or get along with or see as good clients to attend a home birth for. There are conflicts at the births themselves with the amount of uh, Doppler usage, fetal heart monitoring, vaginal checks, the number of people in the room, who gets to touch the baby after it's born, Um, blood testing, vitamin K administration, (laughs) the use of the standard use of Pitocin as a shot into the leg with the birth of the anterior shoulder at home. These are all, these are all, I think, issues that are unexpected for women who, who see that, who feel this joy that they have been accepted into this midwifery program and then are confronted with a whole bunch of medical stuff. Yeah. Even postpartum, you know, like breastfeeding issues, um... Uh, vitamin D administration, um, weigh-ins are big, you know, how fast is your baby gaining weight? How much weight is your baby gaining? How much weight has your baby lost? These are all still conflicts that arise with midwives. We may imagine that it's much easier than it is with doctors, obstetricians, family doctors. Maybe it is easier, but they are still conflicts that arise because we're dealing with a medical institution. And I've I've said this just uh, millions of times before, but it's not that traditional birth attendants or or independent home birth doulas are are better, smarter, whatever than regulated midwives, but that the money counts. Where the money comes from, who's signing the checks, does make a big difference, because if you're in reality, in effect, working for the government rather than working for the individual women that you're serving, then the government is your boss, not these women and families. And it's the institution that has the last word. And it's the institution that controls the way you practice. Whereas for women who are working as traditional birth attendants, they answer only to the mother. 
into these families. Um, and I don't have a problem with socialized medical care at all. I think it's wonderful. But I also think that real reproductive freedom means that we are preserving the right that every single woman should have to birth the way she wants, when she wants, with whom she wants. Um, and that that has to include the right to hire someone off the street, Joe Blow, Fred the Plumber, to be present during your birth experience. And so my problem is not with the existence of institutionalized uh, birth care, whether that's in hospital or birth centers or government employees coming to women's homes to assist them during the birth experience, but that my problem is with the criminalization of a practice that has really sustained, well, I shouldn't say sustained life at all. No, that's not what it is. But, uh, you know, a practice that women have been offering to each other in various forms, really, since the beginning of humanity. I should also say in talking about conflicts that arise, it's not only the birthing women who are experiencing conflicts. The midwives themselves working within this system are facing conflicts every single day. They're under intense scrutiny from the medical system. They're under, they're under the supervision of a regulating board that isn't only sat on by midwives. It is sat on by nurses, by doctors, by community members. They are limited to a scope of practice that doesn't necessarily align with their personal values or what they would personally do at their own births. But they are faced with formal complaints filed against them. They are faced with threats to their job security. They are coming out of institutionalized education with massive debt load. Maybe young children, maybe they really can't afford to lose this job. Maybe they really need this job to pay off their student debt and they don't want to step on anyone's toes by allowing their client who feels very strongly about not having ultrasound done, not having GBS testing done, having her home birth in the middle of the snowstorm at age 41 and at 41 weeks plus six days. And the midwife is not going to want to put her neck out there for this individual and risk losing her livelihood and her house and her kids in order to stick up for someone else one day. And it's a shame that they have to make these choices, but they're also in a very difficult position working inside that institution. And that's why I was as compliant as I could be because I was aware of that, that conflict um, that the midwives um, experience as well. I think, too, as women, we are socialized to be compliant in all kinds of different situations, you know? We're taught to be polite and to be accommodating, and I think that, especially during pregnancy and birth, that can really work to our disadvantage. This is another aspect of the system that I think is very problematic, and, and that is that I've heard directly, this was actually part of a public discussion that was held in New Brunswick when regulated midwifery was being implemented in that province. We had a, a, a couple of visiting midwives or student midwives, anyway, 
people who were who were either practicing regulated mid- midwifery or about to practice regulated midwifery discussing how regulation works. And I think this was in Alberta or maybe it was Ontario, but they were very open and explicit in this public forum about describing how, as regulated midwives, they received applications from individual women requesting midwifery service, and that they were very free to go through these applications and to pick and choose which women they felt would be the best candidates for regulated midwifery. So what what these regulated mid- midwives were very open about doing is you know, not choosing women who are who are older, not choosing women who'd obviously had prior C-sections, but very explicitly picking out from their stack of applicants those women who looked to be the least risky, least difficult, least problematic clients for them. And this just strikes me as really not being right. Like I said, I can't, I can't remember exactly what, in what context this, this came up, but it was definitely midwives working in the system, I think Ontario, who, again, were very open about this as being part of their scene. This is part of how they, how they work. And so that's not access, you know, that's not choice. <laughs> that's, that's cherry picking and... Uh, and immense privilege, really, too. It's actually completely counterintuitive to one of the main arguments for regulated midwifery, which is that women, uh, women of color, women of, of cultural minorities, women of socioeconomic disprivilege will have better access to midwives than they would in an unregulated system. So this is... This is pulling the bottom layer right out for the tower to fall over. And I can speak a little bit about, this is related to to what you're just saying, Kate. Um, In my own experience, when I was 19 and 20 years old, pregnant with my first baby, about to give birth to my first baby, and I had engaged the services of a regulated midwife in the community in British Columbia where I was living at the time, and I ended up releasing that midwife from our relationship. I realized during my pregnancy that this was not the kind of relationship that I was comfortable with. And I just said very frankly and openly to her, you know, I don't get the sense that we're on the same page. I understand that the way that you practice is based on the rules that that you have to follow as a regulated midwife, and it's not going to work for me. So this is not happening. And she was understandably, you know, displeased with that. And we had several conversations during which she tried to sort of reason with me. (laughs) But ultimately, you know, I was really absolutely convinced at this point that this wasn't going to work for me. And it was, it was the right decision for me to make. But near the end of our relationship, when we went our separate ways, one of the things that she said to me was absolutely chilling. We sat down for our last conversation and she said, you know, Yolanda, I actually just want to tell you that, that I really understand where you're coming from and that I don't think I would be comfortable with regulated midwifery myself if I were giving birth in this day and age. And it was, I mean, it was like hilarious on one hand and ridiculous but also extremely poignant and so very sad like this was 
a woman who actually had practiced for many, many years in British Columbia as an independent midwife prior to any talk of regulation. So she was in her 50s, and she had gone through the ringer trying to adhere to the various stipulations that were placed on her acceptance into the BC College of Midwifery. She'd bent over backwards in order to fulfill all of those obligations in order to be considered, um, you know, to be accepted into the college. And I could just see that this was really weighing on her and that my choice to let her go was, you know, it was devastating for her, I think, you know, emotionally, because she was practicing as a newly registered midwife in a system that was brand new. So this was, I think, the first or second year of regulation. But I could also see that, recognize that she'd sold herself out and that she was selling out these young women who were coming along, forced into the system that in no way resembled the traditional midwifery that she'd been practicing herself for so many years. And it was really heartbreaking. It really was. And I, I've had many conversations, too, with regulated midwives, you know, off the record, in private, you know, around the campfire, whatever, where they, they also acknowledge that, yeah, they are under enormous pressure, like you just said, Kate, you know, and all of this stuff is, it really creates an internal conflict of interest for them. Um, they can't practice the way they want to practice. They are obligated to perform procedures and maneuvers and to recommend this and that that they don't themselves believe in. And that's just not healthy for anybody. It really speaks to a lack of integrity in the system and an imposed breach of integrity for these individual women who went into midwifery with the best of intentions, but who really are, are not able to serve women in the way that I think they want to. In that scope of practice that's imposed on the regulated midwives, they're not able to give their actual opinion on procedures, medical procedures, tests, um, you know, safety. They're not allowed to give their opinion. And I think that this is a huge breach of what women are seeking when they seek out a midwife. They are seeking out a caretaker, a care provider who will also, who will maintain a professional relationship, but also isn't afraid of the personal, isn't afraid to share their own story, isn't afraid to impart some wisdom that has been gained through their journey, that can be, you know, their professional care provider, but also their caretaker through this journey. And when it's legislated out of the game to give your opinion, on the decisions that women are being confronted with throughout their pregnancy, I think that we have lost an essence of what the relationship between a woman and a midwife should be. Absolutely. And, you know, as I've been working with women for the past few years, and I've been witness to many, many births, many home births in New Brunswick, I've also been, you know, myself as a birth worker, navigating the legalities of what it means to be living in a province under which 
midwifery regulation exists or, or it has been implemented, and, and I'm sure it's the same for you. I have read the New Brunswick Midwifery Act many, many times, and you know, under the New Brunswick Midwifery Act, there's lots of stuff that we're not allowed to do. So we're not allowed to call ourselves midwives, which absolutely we, we never, ever, ever do. And I've come to terms with that. And, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm very proud to distinguish myself from what midwifery has become in this culture, which is so, so very different from what midwifery was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 2,000 years ago, etc. And in addition to not being able to call myself a midwife, I'm not allowed to care for pregnant women. I'm not allowed to manage or monitor normal birth. And so I don't. I don't care for women. And I make that very clear with all of the women that I work with or work for. And I certainly don't ever manage or monitor birth. That has never, ever had anything to do with what my view of, of um, a healthy home birth requires or, or what a relationship between a birth witness and a mother involves. And so what I can do, because this is made no mention of in the New Brunswick midwifery legislation, is I can give my opinion on all kinds of things. And so that's, that's really essentially what I'm all about. When, when women hire me, it's because they are interested in my honest, brutal opinion on various things to do with pregnancy and birth. And I don't inform women. I don't educate women. I just talk and I just give my opinion. And and I also just speak my truth about what is involved in pregnancy and birth. And to me, that's all that's required um, to be in integrity with my, my, my beliefs and uh, you know, my convictions. And I also love women. And that is not written into the New Brunswick Midwifery legislation either. So, you know, there we go. It's all, it's all good. No, no laws broken here. Right? I'm sure that you have also read the Nova Scotia midwifery legislation. So are there any, any aspects of that legislation that have sort of popped out at you? And do you make a conscious effort? Or are you conscious of that legislation vis-a-vis -vis the way that you practice or don't? Definitely, definitely. Um, the same... Aspects that you mentioned from the New Brunswick legislation are in the Nova Scotia legislation. And I think I make, well, I don't think I definitely make an effort in my work to resemble regulated midwifery in no way to be completely different from what they are offering women and to not pretend to be anything like it because I'm not. And traditional midwifery is not. And I think that it is in that distinction that we have some saving grace because we are not trying to parade around as fake midwives duping women into having home births. <laughs> we are giving honest opinion and trusting that women can listen to our opinion and contemplate it and make up their own minds and do further research if they want, and reach out for resources and help, or question our opinions and offer up their own. You know, our whole 
society is a little bit scared of offering opinions on anything because we don't want to step on anyone's toes or be thought of as manipulative in some way, as if offering up a personal opinion could manipulate the masses' minds into some sort of hysteric dystopia. Like, what are we, have we completely lost faith in people to just share their opinions amongst each other and be human together? And to then take the responsibility to make up our own minds on what we think and what's best for us and our families. And, you know, earlier today, again, at the lecture that we attended, there was some talk of, um, you know, how personal responsibility fits into the choices that we make as women in terms of where and how we give birth. And one of the ways that I sometimes describe what I do is is just as a home birth witness um, or as a free birth witness. And I think quite unlike what the role that regulated midwives have kind of created for themselves in society or, or the role that the government has created for regulated midwives in society. I, I really don't work with families unless they are making a conscious decision to take full and complete responsibility for their births themselves. And I don't attract clients who, who aren't functioning under that paradigm either. Um, so generally it works really well. And there we go. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I appreciate your lending me your ears. And a special thanks, of course, to Renee, Natalie, and Kate. Thank you so much. I love you all. And I hope you tune in for the next episode, uh, which will be all about how my husband, Lee, and I homeschool our kids. It's not always pretty, and it's sometimes very chaotic, and I have my moments, for sure, of thinking that we're nuts. But for the most part, and by my own metric of success, I think it's working. Our kids are pretty great, and they're doing pretty well, all things considered. I have been a pedagogy and curriculum junkie for many years, and I have a pretty good understanding of the various homeschooling philosophies that are out there. And our family, like so many families that homeschool, does not fit into any particular category um, or identity. Instead, I've quite consciously borrowed from the Charlotte Mason method, the Waldorf approach, classical education philosophy, and I've also been influenced by lesser-known curriculums like Enki. And, of course, we just have a massive dose of unschooling thrown in. In fact, the majority of our children's day consists of being put outside to fend for themselves, <laughs> lovingly, of course. And for me, academic learning is very important, but in my experience and with my own kids, an academic approach is only really made possible by tempering that with just massive doses of free play. So on the next podcast, I'll expand on all of this, and I'll talk very personally about what our typical day looks like and just the various challenges and, and triumphs of our homeschooling experience thus far. And I hope you can join me. So thanks again, and I hope everyone has a great week. Take good care. Bye-bye.